0: Mark, chapter 6, let me give you a brief recap of Sunday. We aren't going to go deep because there's there's a lot, but we won't go into it too much. Sunday. First off, just a show of hands, how many of you were here on Sunday morning? Outstanding. Okay. So, real quick, what we saw on Sunday is Jesus has been, for the first five chapters and some change, teaching and healing Jesus and bringing restoration to people all over Galilee and in the Jewish area. But then he can't just keep it to one group. He instead says, okay, now we're going to go over to the Decapolis or the Gentile side. And he brings good things to them, healing of the demoniac in chapter 5. And then he comes back over to his side. In the first few verses of chapter 6, he goes back home to his hometown in Nazareth. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something about trying to go home. Home is home. But it's just different. But for Jesus, he goes back home and he is not received. In fact, the people there really don't just sort of laugh at him. They, they, they look down on him. And so he is brokenhearted, but he does not let that deter him. Instead, in the very next verse, or rather the second half of verse 6, which is what we started Sunday, he then commissions the twelve apostles. By the way, the word apostle means sent ones. So he sends out the sent ones to do what he has been doing. So in other words, he is modeling for them what it means to be a good mentor. He says, he brings someone alongside, says, this is what you do, watch me. He models it, and then next he says, now, let's do it together. And that's what he's doing right here. He's sending them out, and they're going to come back, and they're going to report. And then eventually, when he returns to the Father in heaven in the ascension, he's going to send them out and say, now, you do what I've done. And so this is step two. He's already been modeling it. Now he's kind of giving them a test run. You guys go out, do what I've been doing. And we talked about the ABCs of ministry that, A, God has given you authority to do what you've been called to do. B, if you want to do what God has called you to do, you need to believe that he will give you what you need. He will equip you, provide for you, give you what you need in the moment. And then the C of ministry is that you have confidence that God's work and God's will will be done that there's nothing the enemy can throw against the kingdom of God that will ultimately derail it. So that was Sunday. Now for a very downer of a passage. Who's who's ready to be depressed tonight? It's going to be so good. You're going to to leave here going, boy, I have a really good life compared to what we are about to read here. It's going to be be just awesome. Uh, Okay, so with that said, here is... An interesting thing, if you noticed on Sunday, we read verses 6 down through 13, and then we jumped over a bunch of verses to verse 30. Because Mark is doing something. He's actually creating a bit of a flavor for what he's describing. I won't get into this much here. It's not the point, but I'll still give you the context. This is what, uh, for those of you who like these kind of nerd moments, here's a nerd moment for you. This is this section is what is often called by scholars a markin because it's from mark a markin sandwich. Yes, a markin sandwich. You go, where, where's the beef? How do, how do we know this, okay? A markin sandwich is basically where Mark takes one story and he breaks it into two parts. And he slaps another event or another story or another thought in the middle of it. And he sandwiches that middle piece with the two parts of the one. So he starts by sending out the twelve. You go, I'm going to give you authority. You believe, I'll provide. And you have confidence that God's will is going to happen. And then we jump to verse 30 where they come back and say, Yay, Rah! Look what we did! It's awesome! You say, well, what happened between those verses? You get the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, we're not going to go into this direction tonight, but here's the point Mark, or one of the points that Mark is going to make by the way he organizes his content. He is making very clear to those of us who will follow Jesus that although there will come a day, a verse 30 for every one of us, where we celebrate the good things that God is doing, there will be days in between the sending and the returning where life is not rosy. Can I get an amen from anyone who's lived more than three minutes? And so that is what he is describing here in the way that he flows it. Now, what I want us to do tonight is I want to talk to you, really, this passage that we're going to look at, verse 14 through 29. If you want a title, and I don't know that you do, but if you want a title, and if you want to take notes, how many of you, by the way, have your... Uh, Mark journal tonight. If you have it, you might want to take notes. I would encourage you to go to page 13. That is our weekly blank page. It's called Notes and Reflections. And when we meet on Wednesday night, this would be a great page for you to fill up if you want to keep it all together in a journal. But that would be a place. If you don't have a journal, uh, we have some, I think, out on these tables here and invite you to grab one if you want. But if you want a title, here's the title. Are you ready? This passage is a tale of two people. A tale of two people. There's a phrase I heard from a mentor of mine years ago that has really just sort of helped frame for me what it means to look like, walk like, live like Jesus, and what it means to go from being an immature Christ follower to a mature Christ follower, or even further, someone who has no affinity for God to one who does. And so he said, a friend of mine made this point, and I'm going to put this up on the board. By the way, this is like the, uh, sort of the oldie version of PowerPoint, except it doesn't come with uh, spell checks, so here we go. He said this, and I love this definition. He said, spiritual maturity is going from thin skin and a hard heart to thick skin and a soft heart. Spiritual maturity is going from thin skin, oh, I always am easily offended, I'm easily perturbed, I'm easily frustrated, from thin skin and a hard heart, meaning I don't want to change, to thick skin, meaning, you know, people are people. I, I'm not going to let it get to me quite the way that it has in the past, to thick skin and a soft heart. You know, I'm not going to take what they say personally, but God, if you want to change my thinking, I'm open to it. That's what it looks like to go from an immature person or Christian to a mature Christian. And so what we are going to look tonight is we're going to look at the immaturity of one person, his name is Herod, and do a little compare and contrast with another person that we're going to see here for the last time, whose name is John. Now, we know who this John is. This is John the what? Baptist, because he is a part of the Baptist church down the road, correct? No, no, no. Rather, John the Baptizer. That was a nickname given to him because at the beginning of his ministry, he went down to the Jordan River. In fact, today, you can still go to both of the places that people believe that one of these two is probably where he did the most of his baptizing. You can still go to those places today. But at the beginning of his ministry, he would go out there and he would call people to repent. He was bold. He was hairy because he wore a hairy shirt. He ate locusts with honey. And he'd proclaim the good news of Jesus and baptize people with the baptism of repentance. So he received the nickname, John the Baptizer. So I put a mint in before coming up here and I've been trying to find a way to get rid of it discreetly. There is no discreet way. I apologize for chomping in your ear. With that said... We're going to do just a little compare and contrast, but I want us to read the passage and walk through this and see what God may show us. So, let's begin. We're going to read through it, and then we're going to walk through it piece by piece. Verse 14 says, King Herod heard about this. Now, what's the this? Well, all the great things that the apostles are doing in the name of Jesus. They are healing people, casting out demons, teaching people to repent, teaching them to follow God and love God. They are doing so much. By the way, church, this is so exciting to me. The followers of Jesus are living so much for Jesus that the pagan rulers of their area hear about Jesus because of the followers of Jesus. How cool is it when the church is so forceful and confident In bold, in declaring the name of Jesus, that even government officials who do not love God, know God, care about God, go, Whoa, who is this Jesus I keep hearing about? And so, Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, now now this is interesting, everyone's trying to figure out who is Jesus. That's one of the major themes through the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to nail down on the center passage in this whole book. I'll tell you what it is just yet, but we'll get there, okay? But that's one of the big themes. Who is this Jesus? So, some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him, talking about Jesus. Others said, no, he is Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John... The man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias. remember that name, his brother Philip's wife, whom he, Herod, had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. We'll come back to that word. Yet he liked to listen to John. Finally, the opportune time came. On on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders, And the leading men of Galilee, which is the Jewish area, when the daughter of... Now, now pay attention to the family tree here. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you. And notice this phrase, it should sound familiar. Up to half my what? Now where did we hear that last? That's right, in Esther, just the past few weeks. So it's amazing, hundreds of years have passed, but people have not changed all that much. Aren't you glad that we don't live in a day and age like this where people in power misuse their authority all the time. Aren't you glad we don't live in that world anymore? <laughs> uh, it's not called lying if you make it clear you're being sarcastic, right? Don't want to lie in church. So here we go. He says, ask me for anything. I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Verse 24. She went out and said to her mom, what shall I ask for? Now think about this. She's just done something. She's danced. She's danced. She goes, ask her mom. And what does her mom say? I want the head of John the Baptist. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now, not in a week, month, or a year, but right now, the head of John the Baptist on a dinner plate. The king was great, greatly distressed. By the way, just a side note. I would be greatly distressed if a teenage girl asked me for the head of someone else on a plate. It doesn't matter who the person is, that's just a little scary. But she says this, and he is greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. All right. You say, how in the world does this show spiritual maturity, and why are we talking about it? By the way, do you you kind of pick up on why I wasn't real keen on doing this on Sunday morning when we had five-year-olds in the audience? (laughs) Mommy, what's a beheading? Ask your father. We just didn't need to get into that. So, with that said, what I want us to do is walk through... What does it look like to go from immature to mature? What does it mean and what does it look like? Because we learn so much about this. We're going to look at sort of a compare and contrast, and I want to show you the key to growing and then a note of hope at the very end. So that's where we're going to finish up tonight in the next 25 to 30 minutes. I want you, if you want to take down notes, I think the very first thing that we see when it talks about sort of comparing and contrasting immature to mature is simply this. An immature person, meaning someone who has thin skin and a hard heart, refuses correction. Someone who has thin skin and a hard heart, man, they, they, they don't take any correction from anybody. By the way... Maturity has less to do with the number of years you've been alive and more to do with how you have chosen to invest those years. This is why you find in some churches young people who are very mature or very immature, and in the same place you will find older people who are very mature and some who are very immature. I mean, think about it. How many churches do we know of that you have someone who's 60, 70, 80 plus, and they're just mean as a snake? Now, now, don't, I mean, I know you know that person. We're not going to talk about those people here. But here's my question. If you have walked with Jesus for 20, 30, 50, 60 years, how is it possible for you to still be mean, to not receive coaching? How is that possible? It's because the number of years are less important than how you invest the time of those years. And so, refusing correction versus receiving correction receive correction. So let's just sort of talk through this. So what's going on? You have John who comes and is blasting Herod. Why? We're told that Herod has been engaging in first an illicit affair and then um, really just uh, illegitimate marriage is what, we, what it comes down to. Now, How many of you have ever seen a reality TV show, or at least seen a title? We'll just kind of go there, even of a reality TV show. Anyone in here? Like, like uh, Gang Wives is one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Survivor, or, or maybe you know you've got uh, you've got these uh, hoarders and other things. You have got these really weird shows. Some of them are just very odd. Are they not? Herod's family tree would beat all of them on the oddity scale. Let me give you just a real quick rundown so you get context here of what's going on because it, this is central to understanding the text, okay? Can you stay with me for five minutes as I give you a little family tree here? A little genealogy. Here we go. Uh, we hear the name Herod, and I think for many of us, we assume whenever you see the name Herod, it's referring only to one person. In the Bible, the name Herod refers to... Two different people. The first person that we meet, and I'm going to have to be real small because I don't give myself enough room. All right, here we go. The the first one that we meet is Herod the Great. So we'll just call him H.G. All right? Herod the Great was king over Judea, over Galilee. He was the ruler, a puppet ruler, mind you, but the ruler over the Jews during the time of Jesus' birth. He is the one who commanded the execution of all the babies of Bethlehem. He was a wicked, wicked man. But he was king under the Roman Empire. He was the king over this area. And his job was to keep the peace. Now a couple things about Herod the Great. Number one, Herod himself was not Jewish. He was Idumean. He was from a region called Nabutia. If you look on your map, if you go to page 5 of your Mark journal, I believe, and you look down towards the Dead Sea, which is also the Salt Sea here in the bottom center right of your map, Nabutia is on the eastern side of that area, and it was not a Jewish region. That is where he came from. He married a Samaritan woman. Now, what do we know about the Samaritans? How did the Hebrew people feel about the Samaritan people? Didn't like them, did they? So you have a pagan foreigner who marries a Samaritan, and they are your rulers as Hebrew people. How do you think the Hebrews like this? Not at all. Not only that, Harry was a pretty rotten guy. He had ten... Wives. he was power hungry and he was paranoid he had many of his wives and sons killed because he was fearful they would try to usurp his throne in fact there was a saying that went around in their day and age better to be a pig of herod's than to be one of herod's sons because he might kill you he put to death the entire Jewish Sanhedrin because they did not like one of the rules, one of the things he said, one of the things he did. And so this is the man who is at the center of the birth of Christ. He died in 4 B.C. You say, you know, wait a minute, how is that possible because Jesus is born before he dies? We kind of got the dates messed up when we started to say when is 0 and when is 1 when is 2 and, and, and the AD, a, you know, and, and, and so don't, don't let that worry you but the point is this is Herod now he had multiple sons multiple wives he had a lot of little herods running around he had a sister his sister is uh let me make sure i'm spelling that correctly salome s l o or s o l o m e now this is his sister and they decide to have a baby <laughs> Their baby is named Bernice. It's a girl. Herod, also nine other wives. I promise this will all make sense hopefully in a moment here. And there are three sons. There's a lot more, but I'm only going to give you three because these are the ones you want to know. The first one, uh, kind of go over here. The first son is named, Here we go, Aristobulus. Aristobulus and Bernice get together. So they are sort of step siblings, is what this comes down to. And they have a child. Their child's name is Herodias. Who's in your text? This is that woman. So Herod's son, Herod's daughter, have a child that is Herodias. Now, here's this thing. Herod kills Aristobulus because he was scared he would try to usurp his authority. He has another son, Herod Philip. Herod Philip marries who? Herodias. So he is married to his niece. Are you seeing a little issue with this whole family tree? And then you have a third son. This is The Herod that we're reading about right now, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas has a wife. She is a Nabutean princess, meaning the daughter of one of the kings of Nabutea. But Herod, when he is in Rome, sees Herodias, and they begin an affair, and they get together. Oh, by the way, I meant to mention here, Philip and Herodias have a daughter. Who's the girl who's dancing? That's right. This is their daughter. Her name is not given in scripture, but Josephus, one of the first century historians, gives her the name and says her name was Salome with an A. She is between 16 and 17 years old. Now, Herod Antipas sees Herodias, goes hubba hubba, says let's get together. He then takes her to be his wife. He divorces his original wife, which ticks off the king of Nabatea, as it would any king, correct? So the king of Nabatea mounts his forces, sends an army to go up against Herod Antipas. Herod loses, almost loses his wife, It is or life, it is only because Rome steps in and stops the fight that Herod Antipas lives. But he keeps his wife Herodias. Now, Herod then, because of this, you see What John is saying is so wrong with this picture. Uh, Wait, we all do see what's wrong with this picture, right? I just want to make sure family trees should be very simple. You know, this one and this one, none of this. This looks like a football play gone bad, doesn't it? You know, you're crossing over here and you're... Anyway, so this is what's going on. So John goes to Herod and he's just saying, this ought not to be done. And instead of receiving correction, here goes, you don't talk to me that way. Throws him in prison. By the way, there's different ways that we uh, don't receive correction, right? We're all very creative. Let me give you three real fast if you want. I think these are three of the big ways that at least I have mastered on how not to receive correction. And if you too want to be very bad at receiving correction, I encourage you to really get good at these three things, okay? Here they are. I've gotten really good at denying when someone tells me I've done something wrong no no, I haven't <laughs> no no, I haven't and if that doesn't work then I go on to the second D which is deflection well you know it really it's so and so's fault it's not my fault it's someone else's fault or I'll even deflect onto the person well you know what I wouldn't have done that if you had done this instead any of you uh, ever do that in your marriage okay So, never mind, never mind. And then the third one that I'm really good at, so you deny, you deflect. The third one is you defend it. You say, well, it's really not that bad. Well, I mean, everyone else is doing it. Well, you know, this is is the way we have to live in our culture. It's just the way things are. You'll notice that those are all the marks of people who are saying, I will stay immature. I do not want to grow up in God. The first thing that happens, he comes to Herod. Herod says, nope, don't care, don't want to hear it. He refuses. The second thing, the rest of these will go a lot faster, I promise. The second thing that we see, and by the way, let me just mention this. I think of people who are like this, who refuse. Here's a real fun phrase to use. These are opinion poll people. I'm sorry, let me jump into the second one I jumped ahead here. Number two, people who are immature are more concerned with what others think. Versus what God thinks. And this is obvious, but it's one that I think we, we can tend to fall into. It's sort of the idea of, well, what, let, let's get an opinion poll. By the way, I, I find, look, there's one of two ways to approach American politics. One is with utter despair, the other one is amusement. Just grab popcorn and watch it fly and just kind of go, one of them's going to be our president. Let's just keep going. That's where I'm at. So I find it wildly amusing to watch during the time where new people are coming into the race. And what's interesting is how many people, and this is true regardless of who's running and where, how many of them are opinion poll people? They'll make one statement, then they'll hear the opinions of others, and they go, well, that's not really what I meant. No, 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 you misunderstood what I said. I don't really have an opinion. Wait, I mean, no, that's not my opinion. I do have an opinion. I'm just not going to tell you what my opinion is because then you might not want me. These are opinion poll people. Here's the reality. Immature people are more concerned with what others think than what God thinks. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. By the way, Psalm 119, fun fact, it's both the longest chapter in the Bible and number two, it is an ode to the Word of God. It is all about God's Word. In fact, if you read some of the more famous Verses in there, two of them that come to mind are verse 11, which says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Meaning, I am more concerned with you and what you desire, so much so that I have just made it a part of who I am. Consequently, because of that, it gives me a rock-solid footing. I'm not wavering based on opinions. I have an opinion based on your word. This is why he then says in verse 115 or 105, Your word is a what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Meaning, He gives me solid footing. I'm not being blown around by the opinions and approval of other people. Isn't it fun to be around mature people who know who they are and they're just not all that concerned with what other people think? I'm not talking about rude people, by the way. There are rude people who don't care what others think. I'm talking about those gentle giants that you know in this church and many in this room. In fact, I have yet to meet one in this church who isn't this way, who knows who they are and loves Jesus so much that they are confident in it. And yes, they're gentle. They're kind to others. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's what Jesus says that matters most. That is a mature person. Thick skin, soft heart. Third thing here is how they're more concerned, immature people are more concerned with how they look than how they live. How they look than how they live. Uh, Would any of you agree that we might live in a somewhat superficial culture? Uh, Anyone uh, consider that a possibility? It's not, hey, look, it's not how you feel, it's how you what? What? It's how you look. You know, and and, and the people who wear things... Case in point, ladies, you are amazing in so many ways. Here's one thing I do not understand. High heel shoes. What is their purpose? Now look, this is coming from a short guy, so admittedly, I don't see their purpose at all for anything. But beyond the height issue here, I mean, really, they're uncomfortable. I mean, how do you get around in them? And, And the response I've always gotten is, but they look so good. yes. But your feet are bloody after you take those things off. It's not worth it. Now, I'm teasing here, but the reality is, immature people are concerned with how they look, not with their footwear, but in the overall of their life versus how they are living. And we see this, don't we to look at well, nuts, no, look at this. Uh, in verse 21 through 23, it says... Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for whom? Yeah, all the leaders, all the movers and shakers, the captain of the guards, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Now that one's interesting to me, because it's not just Herod who wants to look good, it's a bunch of Hebrew people who want to look good too. And he throws this party... And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, we're told she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, I want to be thoughtful, but I want to be clear. This was, not, um, this was not the hop or the twist that she was doing. This wasn't the Macarena for some of you. This wasn't any of that. This was what was called, she did the dance called the Dance of the Veils, which was, and I'm trying to be delicate, but it was a striptease. So when it says that she pleased the men, this is not simply, oh, wasn't that lovely? This was a group of men who were objectifying a person. That's what's happening here. And she does this for her step-uncle and who's also her niece. And I mean, just really, come on. But what's interesting is because of this, to show how magnanimous he is, he says up to what again? Half my kingdom. Now, quick question. And I'm going to give you the answer. Was Herod the king? No. Interesting little thing happened. After his daddy, Herod the Great, died, part of his request to Rome was that his ruling kingdom would be broken into four parts. Herod Antipas is a tetrarch, meaning he is a ruler of a fourth. He is not a king, but he likes to be called a king. In fact, he would call himself king of the... Jews, interesting, what was put over Jesus on the cross when he died? King of the Jews. Now, Herod was not a king, but he liked to call himself one. He's sort of like that guy, you go into one of these retail outlets, you've got the assistant manager, you know the guy I'm talking about. He comes in, he's got assistant manager on his name tag, but he marks out the word assistant when the manager's not around. So he's like, yeah, I'm the manager. The manager walks back, he goes, no, no, I'm the assistant manager. The manager leaves, he puts it back on. no, I'm the manager. You know these people? This is Herod Antipas. He wants to look like somebody, so he makes this big boast: "Up to half my don't really have a kingdom, my kingdom." And not only that, did you know? According to Roman law, he did not have the legal right to even give an acre of land to someone. Up to half my kingdom. He's concerned with how he looks, and so he makes this boast. The girl goes back to her mom. Herodias, who hates John, give me his head. She comes back. I want a head on a platter. And we're told this very sad but telling phrase. Do you notice it here? In verse 25, she says, I want the head. And he goes on to say he was greatly distressed. But, look at this, because of his oaths, Now, if it had ended there, I'd kind of go, well, I get it there. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, how will I look if I don't do what I told her I would do? Oh, no, I I can't. I've got to save face. After all, I'm the great Herod Antipas, the assistant king, the pretender king. How will this look? Here's the thing. Immature people are more concerned with saving face than doing what is right. They're more concerned with how they look than how they live. By the way, I'll just be honest with you as I've been thinking through this this week, I have felt conviction over some of this going, man, I don't want to be a man who is more concerned with the outer appearance. I want to be a man who is concerned with what's going on in my heart. And I love this picture. You have Herod who's constantly gobbling up honor and power and trying to get, 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 get. He can never get enough And you have John, whose whole life and ministry has been to give honor away to Jesus. In fact, as Herod is trying to take, you have John, who we're told in two different places, puts all honor on Jesus. In John chapter 1 and 29, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says that to disciples who had been following him And when he does, they leave him and go to Jesus. And he's like, that's absolutely right. And then in John chapter 3 and 30, he says that he himself must decrease, but Christ must increase. The idea is that mature people grow to a point where they say, man, I don't care how I look, I just care how I live. I want to be a man or woman of character regardless of what other people think, say, or do quick sort of self-assessment question you might want to think about is this. One I've been thinking about a lot this week is this. Do I tend to take credit or do I tend to give credit? Do I tend to want to be the center or do I tend to push that to someone else or to Jesus? That's not always an indicator, but it is at least a way of assessing a bit is this an area of growth or not. Let me give you the fourth and final one here and then we're going to get to a couple little meaty things and call it a night. Number four Immature to mature, refuses correction. Others, how I look versus live. And then finally, people who are immature feel regret, but they don't feel repentance. Okay, repentance, A-N-C-E, or yeah, A? Okay, very good. We'll edit that question from the video because I want to look good. <clears throat> <laughs> Are you not listening? <laughs> All right. So here we go. The final one is simply this. They, they feel regret, they don't feel repentance. You understand there's a big difference between feeling regret and feeling repentance, right? Yeah. Regret says, oh no, I, I can't believe I got caught. <coughs> repentance says, thank God he caught me before I could kill myself. Regret says, oh no, what have I done? Repentance says, I will now do different. Regret is often simply an emotion. Repentance, we've said this before, repentance literally means if I'm going this way, I stop. I change the way I'm thinking, feeling, believing, behaving. I turn around and I go the other direction. Repentance is changing your direction. Regret, I can be regretful or remorseful and continue to do what I've been doing, right? But interestingly enough, when Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, He says, blessed are those who mourn. He does not say blessed are those who moan about what they've done, but rather those who have shifted and changed. So, immaturity is, man, I feel bad for what I did. Are you going to change? No. But I feel bad about it. Okay, well, feeling bad is not a virtue. Changing to become like Jesus is. So these are the four. Now, here we go. Let's finish this real fast. Let me give you two things. Call it a night. Number one is this. Some of us, if if you're like me, and, and, and here's the thing. I love being a preacher. I also hate being a preacher. Because before I share, these are the things that God beats me up over or shows me. And so all week I've been going, rats, oh man, that one too. And then I'm like, man, I'm doing really, oh no, I'm not doing so well on that one either. So join me in my misery, look at this list, and here's the thing, if you find yourself in areas where, man, it's hard to receive correction, or, or you tend to think about what others think about you more than God, or maybe how you look versus live, or, or you tend to feel a lot of regret, but the change is not there, if any of that, here's what I'd say, do not beat yourself up two nights. In fact, I want you instead to see a note of hope here. We don't have time to dig in too far, unfortunately, but let me just give it to you in brief. Do you notice that God, even to the most hardened heart, sends messengers to tell the truth because God loves them enough? It is when Herod was at his worst moment where he had been an adulterous man who took a wife that was not his own who had lived for himself, it was in that moment that even because of his sin that God brought John into his life. He brought a man whom Jesus called the greatest man to live into one of the worst men's lives. Here's the beautiful thing. Even if you and I have room to grow, which we all do have room to grow, don't we? I haven't arrived. Have you already arrived at perfection, family? Anyone in here? If you think you have, just, just talk to your spouse and then you'll know the truth about you. But here's the good news. No matter where we are, God continues to send his voice through other people, through the word of God, to interact with us, to impact us. And here's the interesting thing. I told you to pay attention to that word, puzzled. We're told that Herod, was he feared John, not like he was afraid, but rather he honored him. He saw him as a holy man, as someone who's... He had character and conviction, and we're told that he was puzzled by John. That word puzzle is a really important word here. The word puzzle comes from another word, but the, the word puzzle is aporeo, but it comes from the word poreo. The word poreo means that you are traveling down a path, like you know where you're going, but the word poreo with the letter A at the beginning, a aporeo, means you don't know where you're going like moral or amoral, with morals, without morals. I know my direction. I don't know where I'm going. I'm puzzled. I'm confused. And the reason he was confused is because he had been living his life going one way, confident that this is the way to life. And the voice of God comes to him through John, and he goes, uh-oh, this doesn't make sense anymore. It's, it's confusing. I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by this. Listen, the people who grow from this to this are in those moments where something hitches, something kind of confuses or puzzles, or, oh, maybe the way I'm living isn't up. Maybe that's not right. They lean into it. They don't run from it. The moments where God has, by His grace, helped me to grow the most are the moments where I humble myself to Him when He shows something. Immediate obedience leads to maturity. Delayed obedience is disobedience, Right? And the interesting thing, we're told that over time, we think we have all the time in the world to follow the Lord and do what He said. The reality is we don't, do we? Do do we have all the time in the world to change family? No. Because you notice in the very next verse we're told, finally the opportune time came. This is 21. We say, oh right, finally he's going to step into who God has called him to be. Nope. The opportune time is for Herodias to enact her revenge and Herod Antipas's time of hearing the voice of God through this man, John, is now coming to an end. Spiritual maturity comes when we hear the Word of God and we immediately obey it even when it's very, very hard. And over time, He changes who we are. Here's the final note of the whole story. We're calling it a night and be done. You notice it says, very sad last verse, verse 29, after John has been beheaded, that some of his disciples come and they take his body. And it's like, man, what a downer of a story. But here's the good news if you know Jesus Christ. Are you ready? They bury his body. Let's bow our heads in prayer, right? Like, how's that good news? Here's why this is good news. Are you ready? Stay with me. Two minutes. The Jewish people in their day, and still to a great degree today, believed that the only way to intern a body or to... Uh, with a deceased person, what they would do with the body, they would not burn the body ever. Now, don't freak out if you know someone who, uh, who has uh, you know been uh, uh, cremated. Thank you. That's not what we're getting at here. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture that says that is bad or anything. Okay, So don't hear me say that. But I want you to hear what they would believe and why. They would only bury a body either in a tomb or in the ground. They would never burn the body. They would never incinerate the body, and here's why. In fact, there were legal texts, their Mishnah would forbid that, but here's why. The reason was, burial to the Jews and now to the Christian is a statement of faith and belief in resurrection. The Jews believed, as we believe, that we will die, but we will be raised. You say, okay, what, help me understand this. Let's go real quick. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see this, and then we're gone. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter. The Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of the body, and he talks about what will happen. And these are some things. Verse 37 of 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read this. Verse 37 says, When you sow, he uses a picture talking about death, and he compares it to sowing a seed. He says, when you sow, meaning You put a seed in the what? In the ground. When you sow a seed in the ground, you do not plant the body that will be just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Now jump down with me to verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, do you notice the mental image he's using? Like a seed, the body that is sown in the ground, it is It is. Is perishable, but it is raised imperishable, meaning although it is like a seed, it is it's not alive, it's not doing anything. They would never burn the body because when they would they would bury the body like a seed going to the ground, that although it would be dormant for a time the Jews and now those of us who believe in Jesus know that although all those who die like a seed in the ground our bodies will lay dormant for a season of years. But He's coming back. And He's raising you and me up. In 1 Corinthians 15, just a few verses earlier, Paul makes this beautiful picture in verse 23. He calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. How many of you have ever been in an orchard or a vineyard or someplace as the first fruit is starting to come out onto the vine or the tree. It's that picture, that very first one that comes out, you go, I see it, that one is coming out. Spring is here, they're coming. And Paul is saying that just as Christ's body was buried in the ground like a seed for three days because death could not hold him, he came out. He is now the first fruit First fruit means there's going to be more fruit. So for all those who are buried, listen, when we have a burial, it is sad because we are sorrowful for those who are now not with us in the body. But we rejoice because we're saying this is just a moment and Christ is going to raise them. He is going to bring them up. This is going to be resurrection. And this is why, although it's sad that John was killed, he had walked with the Lord, he loved the Lord, so that when he died... Because he had grown and he trusted. Verse 29 is not the last verse of his story. And it will not be the last verse of your story either. This is the good news of the story. Let's pray. and We'll be out of here. Father, thank you so much for showing us these two men. And although our heart breaks for what happened to our brother, we celebrate that he knew you, that he grew in you, that he trusted you, that he was a man who, who grew in his maturity and he called people to do the same. And I thank you for a church like Clear Creek with brothers and sisters who lean into you and want to grow. May we continue to grow to be men and women with thin or thick skins and, and soft hearts and may you change us so that when the day comes, that the trumpet sounds and we hear your voice, it will be one of great rejoicing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.